So uh, the voices we've talked about so far have primarily been internal voices. And so tonight we talk about the voice of guilt, which can be internal or external. And uh, it's a voice that all of us hear. And the, the, the what's at issue here is not you know, that whether or not you hear the voice of guilt, because you do, not whether or not um, this is something that you uh, hear often or not often or, you know, more at some seasons of your life and less at others. That's really not the issue. The issue is when you hear the voice of guilt, how do you know whether it is uh, leading you correctly whether it's a good voice or a bad voice because guilt is two-sided it has a good side and a bad side so this conversation will be helpful in a multitude of ways like for example you could take this material that we'll talk about tonight and you could apply it if you're if you're asking yourself a question well I feel like you know, God's telling me to do this, but I don't know if it's me or if it's God. Well, this will help you, okay? So, the first thing we want to talk about here is uh, when we're in bondage to feelings of guilt, we need to learn to discern. That's what's key. Are you facing a friend or fighting a foe? Which one is it? See, we recognize that guilt is natural and guilt is good. You, you know, think of the situation where you, you see this, uh, there's been this horrific crime committed. And the perpetrator of the crime is sitting there in the courtroom and the report comes and the whole report is, well, there's no remorse or they didn't respond to it or do y'all have the wrong handouts? How, how did you manage to do that? How is that even possible? I'm the one that put them there, and I only put the ones there for tonight. So never take one out of the basket. I'm like, what's the mad scramble going on here? Half of you should have been saying, this seems a lot like last week. You didn't recognize the same handout? You should feel guilty about that. Very guilty. And this isn't the good guilt, it's the bad guilt. Janie, this is the bad guilt. <laughs> All right. So there's this horrific crime that takes place now that we're all reset again. And so the, the perpetrator comes into court and he shows no emotion. And so what happens? All the media and all the people are like, you know, we're, that, that's a bad sign. Because we're recognizing that guilt is good. And here's the thing. Even if the guy comes into court and he's crying and he's remorseful and all that, we're still going to crucify him. But we want him to show guilt. 
We're acknowledging guilt is good. Guilt has very wonderful qualities. But it also has very devious and horrible qualities. So true guilt, which would be our friend, is a godly companion who whispers truth and motivates us to repent and to be free. And we want to love that guilt. That is a tremendous gift from God. Most of the uh, most wonderful things that we receive uh, from God through sanctification come from true guilt. False guilt, on the other hand, is a relentless foe. This enemy, it's an enemy within us that encourages superficial sorrow that will bring death. So when Paul says in the second letter to the Corinthians, godly sorrow brings repentance and leads to salvation, where there's worldly sorrow that brings death. So they're both sorrow. One's godly, one's worldly. And how do you tell the difference? And I mean, really, I don't even know how you would ever begin to be a parent if you don't know the answer to this. Because you, you, you better know this. Because this is like parenting 101 every day. Because every time, you know, little Johnny gets caught with his hand in the cookie jar, he's going to be sorrowful. But you better know whether or not to extend grace or the rod. Or grace and the rod. Or just the rod. So, true guilt. True guilt. Let's talk about it. The, the word guilt refers to the fact of being at fault. It is a, uh, whenever the Bible talks about true guilt, it always uses legal terminology. Deserving punishment and requiring a sacrificial offering. Action deserving punishment requiring a sacrificial offering. So the offerings required on someone's behalf, either the perpetrator. So if we're talking about little Johnny, the offering is going to be his rear end. Right? Or, but someone has to pay the price for the wrong that's been done. Then you have uh, the reality that true guilt, it's always a result of sin. Because if it's not a result of sin, it can't be true guilt. Right? So the most obvious first thing to, to just sort of conclude in your mind is, is that if, if you are feeling guilt over something and it's not sin, then it's wrong. Guilt. Because why are you you're feeling guilt over something that's not wrong? But it's very easy to do that and very common for people to do that, especially depending upon your uh, the context of your family of origin. People who are uh, prone to feeling false guilt grew up in that context and been trained their whole life to do that. Remember... Uh, Oh, Psalm 51, David says, against you and you only I have sinned. So this is the perfect sort of response to true guilt as David uh, acknowledges that all of his sin 
is towards God and it's evil in his sight. Now, what about false guilt? False guilt, we have to be more, uh, we have to give more information because it's so that we can understand what we're talking about. It's based on self-condemnation or feelings of self-condemnation that we've not lived up to our own expectations or to those of someone else. So the, the key to understanding false guilt is feelings and expectations. Those are two things that should always make you weary or leery of trouble. How many times in this series on voices have we talked about, um, man, it seems like half of what I said on codependency had to do with feelings leading you astray. You don't do, you don't do things based on feelings. And you better be careful about expectations. Those are two triggers for trouble. False guilt arises when you blame yourself even though you've committed no wrong or when you continue to blame yourself after you confessed and turned from your sin. So what you've done is you have, in one way or another, what that says is you've went around the Word of God. Because either you've defined something as sin that God doesn't say is sin, which is going around the Word of God, or you have confessed something in Christ and then acted as if what God says in His Word is not true to that. So either way, you're violating the Word of God. The Word of God is always the plumb line. And if you get outside the bounds of God's Word, you're going to get into all sorts of trouble. False guilt keeps you in bondage to three destructive weapons. First, it's going to bring shame. Then it's going to bring fear. Then it's going to bring anger. I would be willing to bet that if, if you are a person who struggles with anger, you have anger issues, or you know someone who struggles with anger, anger is just the symptom. Nine out of ten times, you know what's wrong with someone who can't control their emotion of anger? It's false guilt. Almost always. Almost always. They're angry. In other words, you can only carry around this false guilt for so long, and then it makes you angry at yourself. You take it out at everybody else. But it's, that's what it is. You don't know how to deal with it. So confession, just throwing this in so there's no confusion, does not resolve false guilt. So if you have false guilt and you go to God and confess it, what happens? Nada. And why is that? Because this is super elementary, but you just have to think in elementary terms. Because God only operates in what? Truth. So if you go to God with false guilt and confess it, there's nothing God can do with it because it's not true. Now what God's going to do is not that He's not going to do anything. It's just that it's not going to, you confessing false guilt does not bring forgiveness because it's not, you're, you're confessing something wrong. What God's going to do is through His Spirit lead you to truth so that you can recognize the fallacy of the 
guilt. Does that make sense? Because the enemy, Revelation 12 says, he's the accuser of the brothers. And so he's constantly accusing us before God day and night. Day and night, over and over and over. And so he has these strategies that are his favorite ones to use. For example, what is he going to do? Well, he's going to do in your life whatever works on you. So if it's bringing up your past, then that's what he's going to do. He's just going to bring up your past all the time. Now, here's the thing. If you're feeling, if you're feeling guilt about your past and it's things that you did and they're things that are wrong, but what's the problem? You've confessed those things to God. God's therefore, according to his word, forgiven those things, but you're still carrying guilt on them. That's false guilt. You did them and they were wrong, but it's false guilt. You're associating, you see, what you, the, the, the thing you're feeling guilt from is real, but the feeling is inappropriate and false in God's economy because God's already forgiven that. You see? So he's going to bring up your past. If that works on you, then he's going to, he's going to get you. Or he's going to remind you of your failures if that works better. And it's interesting, you know, some, some works on some people, others work on other people. Um, or he's going to make you feel, some of you, it's not either of those, some of you, what happens is you get this feeling of being unforgiven. You, and you can't even explain it. You just say, I, just, I feel unforgiven, I feel far from God, I feel unaccepted by God. I feel like when I pray... My prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. The accuser's getting you. Why do you feel that way? And here's the thing. Don't let your feelings um, lead you. Now, when false guilt comes in, it's going to lead us to shame. And, and what shame is, is... Shame is what happens when guilt uh, enters into our identity. When we start allowing the guilt that we feel to sort of define who we are. So guilt and shame are the same. True or false? That would be false. They're very similar. Most of the time you can use them interchangeably in a, in a sentence or in a... Uh, you know, when you're talking about something, but they're different. They're different. Shame is a painful emotion of disgrace that results from guilt. See, you can have guilt without shame, but you can't really have shame without guilt. You, it takes guilt to have shame. Shame is something that feeds off of guilt. So we experience shame when our guilt moves from knowing we've done something bad to feeling that we are bad. You see that? See, if I've done something bad and I feel bad about it, that's good. But if I feel, if, if I feel like I am bad, that's false. Who defines 
me. Not my feelings. Not other people's words. The one who makes me, the one who, who owns me, defines me. And that's who defines you. And so you can't be defined by how you feel. So you got to be careful. Shame focuses not on what you've done, but on being ashamed of who you are. You see, it attaches the deed to you. You see how it gets into your identity? So then what ultimately happens is you're basically defective. Causing this deep sense of unworthiness. And then there's constant fear of abandonment and rejection. Remember, fear or shame, anger. No, shame, fear, anger. So first we, we feel guilt. Then if we don't deal with it, it turns into shame. The shame will then cause fear because now we're ashamed. So when we're ashamed, what do we do? We hide. We retreat. We, you know, want to camouflage or we want to, we want to try to, you know, hide ourselves or present ourselves to be something that we're not. And you can only do that so long before you're going to get angry because that's just going to be a, a never-ending uh, battle of uh, it's just going to take far too much energy. You're not going to be able to do it. And here's the thing, this, these devastating emotional scars that come from being somebody who is continually subjecting yourself to or dealing with shame, they, I mean, they'll last a lifetime. A lot of times when I'm having a conversation with people about this and helping them walk through it, these are things that they have learned, ways they've learned to think about themselves when they were children. And a lot of times they were uh, unintentionally given to them. You should be ashamed of yourself. Be careful. You, you might be guilty. But see, what you've done is... When you say you should be ashamed of yourself, you're attaching what little Johnny did to little Johnny. That's a problem. Little Johnny stole a cookie. You need to deal with the fact that little Johnny stole a cookie, but be careful about calling little Johnny a thief because that's going to embed that into his mind. You don't, you don't want to raise a thief. So you better be careful because what you speak into your children is what they're going to grow up to become. All right, so side effects of shame. Shame creates this inner desire to maintain rigid control over emotions and behavior. So when we're ashamed, we, what is a, you know, just think about this. One of the dead giveaways that somebody's got a shame problem is that they never show any emotion. They work really hard to, you know, hold in their emotions. Well, why are you 
If, you, if something makes you sad, God made us to respond to sadness. Why don't you just be sad? But you can't because you're ashamed. It creates this inner loneliness that fosters unhealthy dependencies. Why? Because shame makes us retreat. And when we retreat, we're retreating from people, but we don't retreat from everything, do we? No. So what are unhealthy dependencies that we didn't retreat from? Anything non-human. So almost any, you could, you might, shame could cause you to retreat from people and retreat to food. Retreat to, it's any form of escapism. Retreat to uh, television. Retreat to romance novels. Retreat to addiction. Retreat to, you name it. Just anything where it's a controllable resource so that you're not dealing with, because people are too, are, are too unpredictable, too broad, too wide open. you got to keep everything narrow and controllable. So a lot of times people who, who've got real shame issues can operate fine at work because at work all the relationships are on a certain, they stay in a lane. And as long as nobody leaves the lane, we're fine. So, so maybe if, if you have a shame issue, this is what you do. When you go to work, you know what you do? All your relationships with everybody at work are work-only relationships. You don't have conversations about personal things. You know why? Because that's off limits for you. Because you got shame issues. I mean, you work together, and we talk about all these other things, and then somebody says, oh, well, you know, I noticed this picture on your desk, and they start bringing up something, and all of a sudden you just clam up. Unhealthy dependencies. Shame steals the joy of your salvation. See, you can be in bondage to shame and be saved. Sure, absolutely. Absolutely. Good guilt undealt with can evolve into shame, the bondage of shame. So shame doesn't automatically mean, you know, that it's not an indication of whether God's present or not present. It's an indication that guilt is present and undealt with. And you have to resolve whether, you know, the, the guilt needs to be dealt with. Is it, is it true guilt, false guilt, whatever it is, but it's there. Shame keeps you from seeking solitude, good solitude. You're not going to get alone uh, with God. You, you're ashamed. When pride comes, Proverbs 11 says, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. So you're not going to, when, when shame comes in your, your life, you're going to make decisions that are going to lead you counter to wisdom. Now, what we really want to do now is we just want to spend the rest of our time talking about now how do we respond to true guilt because that's what we want to deal with. That's what's going to be most helpful for us. And one of the best ways to do that is to look at Psalm 32. So David says, now remember, this is written in response to his sin with Bathsheba. And so David said, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, 
and through my groanings all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when he may be found, when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surrounded me with shouts of deliverance. All right, so the principle that will kind of guide us in our conversation here is that you can feel guilty without being guilty, and you can be guilty without feeling guilty. So what does that tell us? I mean, I'm just trying to figure out how many ways tonight I can tell you your feelings are not trustworthy. They're not trustworthy. They're never going to be trustworthy. I'm not saying your feelings don't matter, and I'm not saying your feelings aren't important. Husbands, did you hear what I just said? I'm not saying your feelings don't matter, and I'm not saying your feelings aren't important. What I am saying is your feelings ought not to determine your action. Does that make sense? If you can get this, you can be happily married. I forget it all the time, and then I'm not happily married. Just because feelings aren't trustworthy doesn't mean they're not real or they're not important. So what I want you to do is I want you to picture. that I, I, I'm visual, and so I feel like this will help some of you. If we're talking about how do we deal with guilt, I want you to picture a ladder. A step ladder that has four rungs in the ladder. And each rung represents a step, one of the four steps of dealing with guilt. And so, you know, the ladder, if the ladder is, is firmly planted on the ground, that's the soil of sin that started the guilt. And we're going to walk up towards the pinnacle of purity up the ladder, okay? So the first rung on the ladder is the prevalence of guilt. The prevalence of guilt. Now, what do you think the accuser is going to do when he accuses you? Well, one of the things that's going to make the accusation uh, far more damaging and far more hurtful and far more uh, painful and lasting is, is to you know, elevate the severity or the uniqueness or the, he wants to, in accusing you, he wants to make you feel like you're the only person. You're the only person who is this bad, who is this guilty, who is this whatever it is. And so the first step is just, the, just sort of acknowledging this universal truth. It's so prevalent, we all have to deal with this. All of us have to walk up and down this ladder. See, think about this. We are in Christ, and yet we all sin. So I have to deal with this every day in my own heart. And so do you. This is every day. Every day. 
So the prevalence of sin. All right, how do we need to understand? Because if we misunderstand, because what the prevalence of sin is not telling us is, well, everybody does it, so I'm okay. No. It's prevalent, but we can't hide our wrongs from God. That's why it's prevalent. It's not prevalent because it's okay. It's prevalent because, see, we live in a society where, uh, you know, everybody is hypersensitive to issues of privacy. And so I'm always hearing people talking to me about how they're always telling me how the government is, you know, storing up all of their information and Alexa is listening to all your conversations, and Google is recording all your uh, whatever it is. And, and that may be true. I really don't care. This is what I care about. You think that's a problem. Forget Google. God knows what you say and do, where you go, who you're with, and what you think. Alexa ain't never going to figure that out. One of the games we play riding to school every morning with my kids is Fool Alexa. And so I ask Alexa ridiculous questions uh, on the way to school, and we laugh at the responses that she gives. You know, so. Because it's just, you know, Alexa has has some serious identity problems. Alexa uh, has a problem just admitting that she doesn't know things. That's what I've noticed. So I like asking Alexa questions that she doesn't know the answer to, and then she still answers, knowing that she's wrong. That's the thing that annoys me, but it's entertainment. So uh, we can't hide our wrongs from God. That's the first principle that makes it prevalent. What do you think the second one is? We can't hide from ourselves. So we've got a dualistic problem here, don't we? We've got a God who sees and knows everything. And we have a mirror that we have to look in every day that shows everything. We have this built-in mirror called a conscience. And we can't escape it, can we? And so... You can't, I mean, you're doomed. You can't escape God. You can't escape yourself and your conscience. So what's the plan here? The plan is you better learn the ladders. All I know, I mean, I don't know. I mean, what have you been doing all this time? I don't know. I was thinking all day like, well, I mean, all of this cannot be new news or else I don't know how you make it day in and day out. I really don't understand Unless you're just dragging around so much baggage that you don't know what it feels like to walk free. Which would be heartbreaking, but it would be amazing if tonight the courts, all that gets cut. So we can't hide from ourselves. So now we need to understand some things about just basic, just basically what does Psalm 32 tell us about that? Well, first of all, guilt is found among the best people. And by that I mean, who are we talking about here? We're talking about the only person, as Scripture says, is a man after God's own heart. 
which is super encouraging. But we need to understand that this is David. This is the, the king that's in the lineage of Jesus. So much of the Bible centers around this person, David, and yet the whole text that we're using to understand how to deal with guilt is about this person. And so, of course, David's just like us. He's human. And he does things that are terrible. And because he does them, our response can never be, well, David did it. So, no. David did terrible things, and they were terrible. And David suffered consequences. And what we should do is learn from David that, you know what? When David did those things, David's just like us. David didn't know what was going to happen. David didn't see the long-term ramifications of all that. David saw, he knew, just like me and just like you, every single time that I sin, I know before I do it that it's wrong. You've never done one thing wrong that you didn't know was wrong when you did it. You know that. And David's the same way. But, but David didn't know everything. See, if David knew everything, would David, David would have never done that. And we're the same way. We know it's wrong. See, we can see it depends on the situation. Sometimes we can see that it's wrong right here at the moment. Sometimes we can see it's wrong here, maybe in a short distance ahead. But we can never see the full scope of it or we wouldn't do it. There's not a woman pretty enough on the face of the earth that would have caused David to do what he did had he had known everything that was going to cost him. No way. No way. He didn't know. Neither do you, neither do I. And so what do we need to know? Why is this important? Because whenever we're facing this moment, what do we need to be reminded of? The, the principle of the prevalence of sin teaches us, I do not know the full ramifications of this. Therefore, I need to be very careful about what I do next. Because I do not know. And anytime you, you know how you talk yourself into doing something, is you convince yourself what the ramifications are going to be. The only way you can step off that cliff is to convince yourself it's not going to be that bad, I'm not going to, which is all a lie because we don't ever know that, ever. So the simple just, you know, like a great sin-killing principle in your life is to just constantly remind yourself, I don't know the ramifications of that. I don't know the ramifications of that. That could be horrific. That couldn't. You see, look, it's just take something complicated and bring it into a simple illustration, and you can understand it. Every time I eat a Twinkie, I think, one Twinkie's not going to kill me. And that sucker's good. I mean, it looks better than it actually is, but... Okay, now what if, what if I recognized that there's a possibility that I could eat a Twinkie and drop dead? I'd never eat another Twinkie, never, ever. 
But because I don't think that's a, a ramification, I'll eat a Twinkie. So sin, and I'm not saying eating a Twinkie is sin. I'm just simply trying to help you understand this. When you're standing at the threshold of a decision, all, you know, don't play all the mind games. Just acknowledge the fact that you don't know the ramifications of this. And just live in that reality, and it will so guard you. It will so guard you. Uh, Pastor Matt always has this saying, and I never can remember what he says, but he always says, what do you say? Sin, it cost more than you wanted to pay, took you further than you wanted to go, stayed longer than you wanted to stay, or something. He says it all the time. Well, that's all I'm saying. You don't know how much it's going to cost, how far it's going to go, how much it's going to take. You don't know any of the answers to that. So acknowledge that. So it, it happens in the best of people, but also in the, what about the best of places? Yes. Why is this supported? Well, I, I just want to point out the simple fact that where is David when he sins with Bathsheba? He's in Jerusalem. He's in the spiritual... Christian Jesus capital of the world, right? He's, where is he? He's in the palace in Jerusalem. So he's, so proximity, I, I'm just trying to, to ward off the lies. Proximity is not going to have any uh, effect on uh, guilt. What about Judas? Where was Judas? sitting right next to Jesus for three years. And he ended up with such guilt that he hurled himself off a cliff. So places. Listen, just because you're somewhere with some people doing something, you, you think that somehow you're, you're going to be uh, um, protected, that, that that's going to protect you from guilt? No, the prevalence of guilt... Listen, guilt is, guilt is a possibility all the time, anytime, anywhere, any place, no matter what. So you should get used to feeling guilty about things and not, um, that, that's not always negative. You need to learn to, that's what I'm trying to teach you tonight. Don't reject feeling guilty. Immediately figure out whether that's good guilt or bad guilt and deal with it. So the first step, first rung is prevalence, okay? Now we've got the next rung, problems of guilt. The problems of guilt. There's all these ramifications that come out of guilt. And they're all laid out for us right here in this psalm. So uh, we've got problem number one would be the outward condition. David says he's wasting away physically. Why is he wasting away physically? Well, he says, I've kept silent in verse 3. You can put verse 3 out to the side. I've kept silent. My bones grew old through my groaning all day and night. So just let that make a mental picture in your head. What, what are you picturing? Is David, when David says this, are you picturing David? Is there anyone in the room with David? No. David's isolated. He's by himself. He's not eating because he doesn't want people around him. He doesn't feel like eating. Shame is set in. 
all of his, now he's got this physical situation that's dealing, uh, it's dealing with him and it's harming him physically. It's causing physical problems. Outward. Then you've got the upward condition. Then the very next verse talks about how it's weighing him down spiritually. Remember I said, you're gonna, you feel like you're far from God or you're unforgiven or your prayers are bouncing off the walls. He says, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. 4A. Your hand was heavy upon me. That's an indication of this. He, he's spiraling downward spiritually. He's, he feels separated from God. See, when you're, when you're, when someone, if, if, if someone said, you know, I feel like if, if a kid said, I feel like my parent's hand is heavy upon me. They're in no way indicating to you I, at this moment, I feel so loved and received. No, you feel distant, judged, separated. And so what happens is when guilt lingers, we, we're, our upward condition, we feel distant from God. We feel we're drained spiritually. But it's not just physical. It's not just spiritual. He says in the next part of uh, the last part of verse 4, he says, My strength or my vitality was dried up like the heat of summer. That's the inward condition. He's talking about his emotional state. He's emotionally depleted by this guilt. If you read Psalm 51, it's sort of the sister uh, psalm to 32 because they're both uh, dealing with this issue of Bathsheba and his repentance. And so you can read those two things and you can see where he even references in Psalm 51 this feeling of, of depression. David couldn't pray at night. He's emotionally depleted. His guilt was weighing him down. It was affecting his heart. It was, it was affecting him in every way, physically, spiritually, emotionally. And so there's these problems associated with guilt, and we need to understand these problems. Why am I doing the things that I'm doing? Why is somebody that I love doing these things? There's guilt. These are all triggers to trigger our mind to realize that some that we're dealing with guilt or somebody's dealing with undealt with guilt and we need to talk through this work through this we need to uh, we you can't just let it lay because it just gets more and more destructive the third rung on the ladder is going to be the purging of guilt Now, what if, what if the second rung is not present? Well, then, are we really dealing with guilt? I don't think we are. See, sometimes, sometimes people may use this whole conversation we're talking about and it, it's not even true guilt. They're using the appearance of guilt to manipulate another person 
or to gain pity from another person or something like that. Or, or even this could be going on in your own life and you don't know what's going on. See, you, you could have grown up in, in, a, in an environment where uh, so much the voice of guilt was, was constantly coming upon you. You are so confused about what guilt is in your mind that, you know, you might say, well, I, you know, you may feel feelings of guilt over something and then, and then if someone were to have a conversation with you or you had a conversation with yourself, you couldn't even explain what it is you're talking about. See, that's a whole nother problem. That's not guilt. That's, an, that's another more deep-seated issue of, I mean, I don't want to be harsh, but it's, it's, it's some psychosis. I mean, it's a problem. See, the way that you, you're, if, you're, if you feel guilty about something, that, that guilt affects you. In, in other words, the second rung is going to be, there's going to be problems associated with this guilt. You're going you're gonna to feel, you're going to want to retreat, you're going to feel, you're going to start to feel shame if you haven't dealt with it. But, you know, things are going to start, the longer you're holding it in, the worse it's going to get. And the more it's going to affect you, and the higher your walls are going to build, uh, the, the walls you're going to build. So then we get to this purging, this third step. So the first thing we're going to do in the purging of it is exposure. That's conviction. And that's verse 5, where David says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. So what happens is, is you can't take it anymore. You have to deal with it. You have to address it. Now, the, the better you get at this, then the quicker you can move to the third rung. You don't, you don't have to hang around on the second rung and, you know, cause yourself all this uh, pain and suffering. God's always available and waiting, but conviction. It's the exposure of sin. So false guilt will justify sin. So if it's false guilt, so think about this. What happens when you get to the third rung? If it's false guilt, well, what are you going to confess? You don't have anything to confess. It's not real guilt. You can't say, God, I've sinned against you and you only. Okay, so this is the trap. You, you see how the trap got set for you? All right, I'm going to give you an example so that everybody can go, oh, now I know what you're talking about. So here you are. You've grown up in an environment where People who are in authority over you, who are supposed to love and nurture you, have used guilt, as a, to, they've weaponized guilt to control you. And so you have learned that. And so now those same people and other people use guilt to control you because you, you sort of channel that in in your relationships, right? 
So you don't do what someone else wants you to do so you feel guilty. Is it a sin to not do what someone else wants you to do? No. Why do you feel guilty? You feel guilty because what? How did you get there? Because you have, in your mind, you have determined that the person has feelings toward you based on the fact that you didn't do what they wanted you to do. So the feelings that they feel, feelings of disappointment, you don't even know if they feel that or not. But you feel guilty. So someone feels guilty because, some, because they feel like someone's disappointed in them. What are we doing? What are we, what are we doing? You're allowing... You're, you're, not even allowing, you're, you're not even allowing feelings to determine what you're doing. You're allowing your perception of feelings, which is even worse than feelings, to determine how you feel. And so you're carrying guilt because you've disappointed someone. And my question is, and you know why you can't get over that? You know why you can't deal with that? Satan's got you, he's got that noose around your neck, and he's got you, and you're stuck. What are you going to do? Read your Bible? Good. What's your Bible going to tell you to do? Confess your sin. That ain't going to work. You can't do that. Because it's all an illusion in your head. You just made it up. It's not even real. You've made up a fake thing and you're carrying guilt and you feel shame or, or, or failure, all these things. And it's not even real. It's just used. So, look, the expression of sin or the exposure of sin and then the expression of sin, these are wonderful things. These aren't bad. This is good. Like when you feel guilt, listen. When you feel guilt and you know that you can run to God and you can, you can confess the sin associated with the guilt that you feel, that is the best feeling ever. You understand? That's not bad. That's amazing. Do you want, to tell, you want me to tell you what bad is? Bad is when you can't do that. That's bad. Bad is when you have manufactured this in your own mind. And see, some of you right now, you feel this knot in your stomach because you know this is your life. And it is horrible. It is horrible. Horrible. And so, what happens is you've projected this unhealthy thing that has controlled you that is not of God in any way, shape, or form. And it's, it's locked you in this prison. And here's the thing. 
You project it onto even healthy relationships. So here's the example. How many times do you think this has happened? Phone rings. I'm in my office. Phone rings. Casey says, oh, so-and-so's on the phone, wants to talk to you if you got a minute. I pick up the phone. Voice on the other side of the phone says, Pastor Tony, I just got to apologize. Okay. What for? Well, a couple of weeks ago, a month ago, whatever it was. I mean, I've had people say six months ago, a year ago. I've had people moved away. A year ago, you asked me to do something, and I never did. I didn't do it. I don't even remember the conversation. I'm like, "Uh uh-huh. And they've been carrying this around all this time, feeling like they've disappointed me. And then then all of a sudden, now all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, so... This is why, and, and how do I know this? Because then I'm like, oh, well, I can, now that I'm thinking about it, you've been ducking me, haven't you? Yeah. You see me coming down the hall, boop, you're in the, you know, you know, you don't, you don't want to see me. And here's the thing, I don't even know anything about it. I forgot all about it. I didn't even thought about it. When I asked you to do something, it was like, I was just asking you. You can say no. Who cares? It's fine. And so you've isolated yourself. You've done all these things have happened. Look at all the ramifications that have happened. And it's all this thing in your mind. And you know why? It has nothing to do with me. It's because people have been controlling you with guilt all your life. All your life. And all your relationships are just are, are pitfalls for this if you're not careful. And you're projecting onto people. These feelings that you feel like they have, they're disappointed in you. You can't let them down. You can't, nah, 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 all this. And so when you come to this, the rungs on this ladder, well, the prevalence, the prevalence of, uh, of guilt, you're going to have a problem with prevalence. The problems of guilt, you're going you're gonna, to, all these problems that, that David's facing, these problems are going to be there. But when it comes to purging, you're hopeless. You're helpless. What are you going to do? You're going to go to God. God, please forgive me for not doing what Pastor Tony asked me to do. He is going to laugh in your face. As he should. That's ridiculous. And it's only because your mom or your dad or your spouse or whoever's been using that against you your whole life. So what I'm trying to tell you is, listen, when you, when you have the, the, when the exposure and expression of sin is an option, that is hallelujah, praise the Lord, amen, rejoicing. Let's get the party hats on and the little squeaky things that go out back and forth when you blow on them because... I can deal with this. God will help me with this. This is real, and God will forgive me, and it can be done, and I don't have to carry it anymore. I can, but if it's all manufactured in my head, i got a whole nother set of problems. But you know what we do? This is why I'm going through all this. 
You know, we are so, boy, when it comes to, you know, you, you get to the point when you finally confess your sin to somebody, you've been dreading it forever. You finally confess your sin to somebody and you feel so much better. And every time you're like, why did I wait so long to do that? I mean, every time I say, you know what you need to do? Confess your sin. Everybody's like, <gasps> that's the best news ever. That's the best news you could ever hear. Expose it. Conviction. Express it. Confession. Then you can exterminate it. You can exterminate it. You know, God says to David, he says, uh, David says, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You know, like back in the uh, 80s, I used to love to watch boxing. Now, I don't still love to watch boxing, which proves something to you. I really don't love boxing, but I did love Mike Tyson. Watching Mike Tyson box, now that was something I wanted to do. And every time Mike Tyson was fighting somebody, whatever the pay-per-view price was, didn't matter, I was going to see that fight. And if you ever saw Mike Tyson fight, nine out of ten times, he was always fighting somebody bigger than him taller than him, stronger than him. But he had a, a secret weapon. And he would get up, he would get up underneath that big tall guy and he'd just work him and work him. And at just the right moment, he would bring, he would bring an uppercut up and he would just drill him right there. And when he got a little dazed and then he'd bring that hook around to the ground. They'd go down every time. You know what? That, that technique that Mike Tyson had, that's what grace does to your guilt. It obliterates it. It knocks it out. It, it annihilates it. Grace is like the Mike Tyson to your guilt. So what happens, the extermination of sin, the cleansing, it comes through grace. And see, grace is unmerited favor. So it's something we receive from God that we didn't deserve. But here's the danger. The danger is to get mixed up and start talking about grace being the pardon of sin. That's dangerous. I don't like singing about the pardon of sin or talking about the pardon of sin because that's dangerous. Sin's not pardoned. It's paid for. You better understand that. Jesus isn't the pardon for our sin. He's the propitiation of our sin. It got paid for. It's a problem if you start believing that God excused your sin. He didn't excuse nothing. It's got paid for. Somebody had to pay for it. Remember in the very beginning, I said it, it requires a sacrifice. So it requires a sacrifice. got to be paid for. So the extermination... Is grace, but grace is expensive. It costs God. 
So when God forgives the iniquity of his sin, he's not overlooking it. He's forgiving it by paying it with the blood of his son. So then we get to this fourth and final step, which is the praise. Following guilt. See? We got to erase all this idea that guilt's a bad thing. Guilt's not a bad thing. It could be a bad thing, but good guilt is wonderful because it always ends with praise. And why is that? Because nothing's better. Because here, remember the prevalence that we're all, we all face it, right? So if, if every person in Christ still sins, which we do, so if I know that I'm going to struggle with sin, period, what I want to do is I want to I have the most effective plan possible for dealing with my sin, but not sinning is not an option. I want to sin the least I possibly can. I want to use all the resources that God's given me, the Spirit of God's. I want to listen to His voice telling me I shouldn't do that. I want to listen to that. All those things are important. But if I know that I'm going to need it, which I am, and, are, and you are too, then every time I walk up these rungs, it always ends in praise. Always. Why? Well, David, because the first reason is because he carries. He carries. In Psalm 103, the scripture says that as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed or carried our transgression from us. David indicates in Psalm 51 that God's carried his sin away from him. He carries it away. He carries it. And then after he's done carrying it, he's, he covers it. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. It's covered. It's not, it's not covered to pretend like it didn't happen or didn't exist. It's paid for, therefore it's covered, so God, it's not before God anymore because it's been paid for, which, is, which stops Satan from being able to accuse you of things. So whenever Satan's accusing you and he's telling you, well, you know, well, how do you think that makes God? See, I like it when Satan tells me, Tony, well, how do you think that makes God? What do you think that makes God think when he looks at you? Ha, 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 ha. He sees the righteousness of Jesus when he looks at me. You can say whatever you want to say, Satan. See, because when the sin has been paid for, it's covered. It's not before God anymore. So that's why true love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. You know why? Because it's covered. It's paid for. It's done. So all of the, the sin of my past is not ever before God. God covers it. So he doesn't have to look at it anymore. So it doesn't affect his relating to me in a human way. That's important. He carries it. He covers it. And he cancels it. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. See, that's the thing about grace is there's no imputation of or application. It's not imputed on me. So I, the, it's imputed on Jesus, and then Jesus' record is imputed to me. So what grace really is is the exchange. It's canceled. All right, so if... If your, if your faith, let's say, coming to church, 
You ever heard somebody say, okay, well, I don't know. I come, whenever I come to church, I feel guilty. That's a very problematic statement. If your faith produces guilt, you have a legalistic relationship with God. Faith is supposed to reduce guilt, not produce guilt, reduce guilt. So this, this little uh, tool that I put on the, the back for you, what I want you to understand is wherever it says true guilt, you can substitute, this will be very helpful, you can substitute the word conviction, conviction. And wherever it says false accusation, you can substitute the word condemnation. So when the voice speaks to you in your head, is it conviction or condemnation? That's the same thing. Is it true guilt or is it false guilt? And the way you can determine is by what is it telling you to do? Because what is the giveaway to whether or not we're hearing from God or we're listening to ourselves? God will never lead one of his children away from him. He will always lead you toward himself. So what is the voice telling me to do? The way that I know who's speaking in my head is by what it's telling me to do. And so that list is just helping you sort of get acquainted, accustomed to understanding the difference between the voice of conviction and the voice of condemnation. Condemnation is always leading you away from God. Conviction is always drawing you toward God, right? Right. All right, so the last thing I just want you to think about as we dismiss tonight would be, I want you to think about that famous moment in Isaiah chapter 6 where... Uh, Isaiah uh, has a vision of God, and there's God high and lifted up sitting on the throne, and Isaiah comes in contact with the holiness of God, right? And so this is the prophet of God, the man of God in the presence of God, and what is his response? Woe is me, for I'm undone. What is that? The prevalence of sin. He, because Isaiah is human, just like me and you. And so he recognizes that he, he's not perfect and that he struggles with sin because he's human. And so he, he feels guilt. Woe is me, for I'm undone. And then he, then he immediately goes into what? Confession. He says, for I'm a man of... Now look, God hasn't said anything. And he's already confessing. I'm a man of unclean lips. Nobody's even talking about lips. You see these rungs in this passage. And so he's confessing that. And then what happens? Then one of the seraphim picks up a hot coal and comes towards Isaiah. Now, what do you think Isaiah thinks in that moment? I'm about to die. This is how it ends right here. This horrifically frightening, powerful creature just picked up a hot coal in its hand that didn't hurt it and is now flying toward me and I'm in the presence of a holy God and I am undone and just confessed my sin and so I'm about to die. That's what's about to happen. There's no doubt. 
There's nothing in his mind except for it's over. And then what happens? That coal, the angel takes that coal and touches it to his lips. And what does the Bible say? His guilt is removed. It's removed. It's cleansed. God responds with grace to his people when they are right, when they deal rightly with their guilt. So the question is why do we run from God? Why? And at the end of the, the it, it, this ends, it says, and your sin is atoned for. At the, at the end of the passage in Isaiah 6, it's like, no doubt when you get to heaven and you meet Isaiah, you will not have to ask him, what was the most amazing thing that ever happened to you? It was that right there. Right there. Why, are we, why do we run from God with our guilt when He's designed a system for us to run to Him, to Him, so He can obliterate our guilt? He is such a good Father. Such a good Father. So don't we want to hear His voice instead of the voice of guilt? Man, I do. Let's pray. Father, we thank You tonight. For your voice of truth, for your for your voice of grace, for your